Welcome to Wild Ideas Worth Living, a show where we talk to experts who've taken a wild idea and made it a reality so you can too. From people who have sailed around the world to those who've started thriving businesses and even broken records, some of the wildest ideas can lead to the most rewarding adventures. I'm your host, Shelby Stanger, and I hope you enjoy this show. This is episode 13 with adventure photographer Chris Burkard. This episode was brought to you by Prana. Prana makes clothing for all kinds of adventures, from yoga to climbing, surfing, after surf, even work. We pretty much wear Prana product every day. Best of all, they're built to move with your body. So for surfing, swimsuits stay on, which is awesome. Shorts flex even when you're reaching your legs in weird climbing spots and in yoga. And dresses are constructed to go from the beach to a meeting or a date, which is great for me because I don't love changing. You can wake up, get dressed, and hit the road. Also, for those who care, Prana keeps the environment in mind when they make all their products. You can check out Prana's sustainability video series at prana.com. And right now, if you go to the website and enter the code WILDIDEAS, you'll get 20% off full-priced items. Today, we have on Chris Burkhard. Chris is an award-winning adventure photographer, most known for his work in freezing cold water spots like Iceland. He's young, only about 30 years old. He's traveled all over the world to get shots for brands like Sony, Prana, magazines like Outside, Surfer, Surfing, and he now has four books, even a kid's book. We talk a lot about hustle, about sacrifice, about pain, about freezing cold water and what it's like to be absolutely submerged in it. We talk about body surfing, yoga, managing people, giving a TED Talk, juggling a family, and a lot more. Chris called in after sleeping for only a few hours from editing a film project, but it's a great episode for anyone who works for themselves, anyone interested in photography, anyone who loves to travel, or anyone looking for a little inspiration. I hope you enjoy the show. All right, today we have Chris Burkhard. Chris, welcome to Wild Ideas Worth Living. We're really excited to have you on today's show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm uh, I'm stoked to be here. So you um, slept for a few hours last night. Is that is that correct? <laughs> yeah, I don't know what it is, but I feel like uh, I feel like the older I get, the less sleep I'm I'm allowed to have. Um, the projects that we're doing always just require this like I don't know, like this kind of superhuman time schedule that I'm I'm not really always able to keep. Well, let's just get right into that. I mean, you've had a lot of wild ideas in your life, and right now, um, your wild ideas are requiring you to balance a lot. You're a family man, and you're always on the road. Can we just talk, get right into talking about how you balance, you know, your wild life with having a family? Yeah, that's a good one. You know, to be honest, it's a crazy thing to consider this concept that, like, you know, you you can have and it's it's possible to still kind of live this sort of almost i guess nomadic in many ways um <clears throat> lifestyle where you're you're constantly moving you're constantly traveling and and going places and and but at the same time you you know you're deeply rooted in into a community and having a sense of community and having um you know having this family life that's really obviously it's the most important thing to me and I think that one concept is that people think I'm gone like nine months out of the year, which totally isn't true. Um, 
most of the trips that I do are really only between, you know, like five and, and five days to five to, you know, five days, to two weeks or something like that. So the reality is what I, what I really try to do and what I, what I've learned is that there is a couple kind of tricks and things that really, um, that really make a huge difference. And I, and I guess the one thing I always say is like, I would rather be somebody who is gone, um, a large portion of the time, but when I'm home, I'm really there. And I'm really immersed into that family life. And I'm, I'm there for my kids and I'm, I'm there for my wife and everything, as opposed to somebody who works in nine to five, but it doesn't is, you know, when they get home, it's just kind of, they're, they're burnt out. Right. So <clears throat> who's to really say, you know, one is better than the other, but ultimately what I find is like the ways in which I try to keep that relationship like strong and going is, is just by really good communication. When I'm, when I'm on the road, you know, I don't really want to come home and have my kids wonder where I've been. You know, if they, if I haven't been communicating to them, sending them videos, keeping them updated, like taking the extra time to kind of let them feel like they're a part of the experience with me. Oh, that's cool. That makes all the difference. You know, it allows them to kind of feel this, like, you know, they, they know where I've been, they know what I've been doing. They, we, we've talked about it, you know, this and that. And then I also just try to never text. <laughs> like texting is great, but you often get lost in the conversation. You don't know the, you don't know the person's tone of voice. You don't know what they're going through. You know, you, you can, you, it's hard to read a person that way. And so I found that wait, it's you're, so, a, you're a guy and you don't text. I think this should be relationship, I I, I, relationship I, I, advice too. This is, this is great. <laughs> I'm just not, a, I'm just not a huge fan of like when I've been on the road, like, like just texting someone every day, like that doesn't really work. You have to like, I find that like, you know, being able to do like FaceTime video and show somebody where you are and talk with them. And that's like, that's like crucial, you know? And yeah, your phone bill is going to be a little bit more expensive, but it's better than having therapy bills. So I guess, um, I guess in many ways, like that's, that's the kind of thing that I try to do when I'm home. I I live in a small town for, on a purpose, you know, I want to be in a place that I feel like I can be disconnected from like work and, and not like people can just access me super easily. So I think that all those factors really play into this concept of, of being able to be on the road and, um, and have that time. So what do you do to really, you know, being present sounds like is really, really important for you. Um, from the photos you shoot to just family life, what do you do to make sure you're present, you know, on a daily basis? Are there routines you do? Uh, yeah. Like I mean, yoga or meditation. Yeah. I, I, I Yoga is a huge part of my life. I um, I practiced yoga for maybe like six years or more, and um, even took the time to do a teacher training just so I could learn a little more about it. Nice. Uh, but I find that that with you know just good breathing techniques and and um, and having a routine is a crucial. You know, for me, I, I, it's so funny because for somebody who's constantly inundated with new cultures and people and and you know et cetera et cetera, I'm a total creature of habit, and I love. I love getting into my rhythm. You know, I, there's that feeling like you get home and you're eating your favorite Mexican food and you're, you're doing, you know, you're, you're in bed at a certain time. There's all these kind of things that, that I feel like, um, that I feel like make life so much better and easier for me as a, as a person when I, when I do them. What, so. what type of yoga did you do a teacher training in? Um, it was just basically like an Iyengar based kind of vinyasa, um, thing, but it was a lot of meditation and it was, um, it was, you know, a lot of, uh, um, what's it called? Uh, Ayurvedic medicine as well. And, and so it was kind of a, it was a longer, um, not so much like a quick two week thing, but it was like a six month, um, 
on and off sort of uh, sort of teacher training. It was really cool. It was kind of one of the, the highlights of my life, I guess I'd say. I actually recently did one. I did the intensive. I had two weeks. Um, I did a vinyasa-based one. But yeah, I don't teach yoga, but it really helped. It helped with everything, just my practice, oh. how I approach it. <laughs> uh, totally. And there's honestly afterwards, you're kind of like, you realize there's, there's two there's two stages of your life, life before that and life after. <laughs> it's totally true. And now I'm so much more flexible. Um, what kind of breathing yeah. techniques do you do? Um, you know, I, I've, I think for me, it's, it's more just about learning to extend your breath and learning to, um, not necessarily like meditation's great. And I, I totally do that. But I think on a day-to-day basis, it's more about just breathing deeper, slower, longer, um, you know, that whole, that whole mindset that like breath is life is like really funny, but I think it's actually true. And the person that breathes the longest lives the longest. Right. So, um, I find that that's crucial. I think if there's one thing that we all do is we probably take in not enough oxygen. Right. (laughs) So, um, so for me, that's been, that's been really, um, just kind of something to learn about, you know, and, um, and, and kind of educate myself on yeah, a little this is, bit. This is a topic. Breathing is something I'm really passionate about. I've been doing research for a friend who has a book coming out on breathing. And I think it's not till 2018 or 19, but it's a fascinating topic that is everything in life. And he said, we're doing it all wrong. So uh-huh, pretty totally. interesting. So, <clears throat> so besides breathing, you know, I, I did some stories this year about Wim Hof and breathing and cold water. Now, yep. you love cold water. Can you talk to me a little bit about the lure of cold water spots? You've been to a lot of – maybe talk about some of the cold water spots you've been. And Yeah, for sure. Okay. I'll just let you go. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the last 10 years have really been focused – or maybe the last eight years have really been focused on cold water surfing. Um, I, you know, in the beginning of my career, I did go to all those warm locations, the Tahiti's, the, you know, Indonesia, and yada, poly, yada, yada, yada. I mean, all Mexico. All yada, poly. Cool. <laughs> yeah, I love it. It's super cool, but it's kind of just not really my thing. And I, mm-hmm. I feel like I, I sort of came into my own when I realized that the places I wanted to be were remote and desolate. And oftentimes that's where there's cold water, you know, it wasn't so much cold water is the draw. It's the locations that they, that it, it exists in. Right. So I've always sought out that kind of like beautiful, open, vast landscape, um, that, that I've come to love in photography and really, um, the cold water is just, I guess it's a, it's part of the deal. It's a part of the program. You kind of have to get on board with it and it's not comfortable and it's not easy and I don't really necessarily love it. Um, in terms of like the way it makes me feel, but I love what it brings and I love what it offers, you know, desolate, empty waves on, you know, remote beaches, of the world where not a single soul is around like that to me is what it's all about. And, um, I guess there's a, there's something that just, you know, makes you feel so much more alive when you're able to kind of sacrifice a little more, um, for the places, for the, for the places you go and the photos that you get, you know, that's such a, that's your value. You talk a little bit about sacrifice in your your TED Talk. I love that TED Talk. Thank Um, you. Can you just tell me a little bit more about like where did this idea of sacrificing for a photo come from or to get something good? It it involves some sacrifice. Yeah. I I mean, I don't don't think I need to like, you know, beat it in people's heads. I feel like it's such a – it's such an obvious thing that like Mm -hmm. when you work for something, it feels more valuable, you know? It's it's the same reason why like you know uh, camp food is always better than a, 
hill, you know, because you're like anything when you're camping is great because you just hike there, whatever it is. So, um, that's true. <laughs> it's kind of a simple, simple mindset that, you know, when we, um, when we give something of ourselves, we ultimately gain so much more when we, when we achieve that, when we come to that. And, and with my Ted talk, the thing that I was really interested in was I studied this, um, psychologist for a little bit and his name is Brock Bastion. He's an Australian guy and he, he studied, um, the psychology of pain, right. And then the importance of pain and how it affects us. And one of the craziest things that he found out was that people who had experienced pain in some way, um, had actually been able to feel a little deeper and, and I'll explain that, you know, he, he did some tests where like he had given these kind of, this kind of scented water or scented whatever to like two different case groups. And, and one of them had experienced some type of physical trauma or some type of emotional duress. And, and the other hadn't experienced anything. And the ones that had experienced something, they could, they could pick up the scent like 10 to one over the others. Mm -hmm. And so what I found and I realized is that, okay, if pain and whatever that pain might be, whether you're, you're cold, whether you're, you're this, whether you're that, if you can, if you can get to a place where you are, you know, it's not like taking over your life, you know, um, it can actually bring you more in the moment. It can allow you to feel a more and greater visceral experience. So for me, it's like when I'm giving something of myself, even if it's just freezing or, or, you know, standing on a cold beach or, you know, hours and hours of planning or whatever that is, something that I'm sacrificing, it allows me to just feel a deeper, you know, that's just like, it, that's just the simplest way to put it. I love that. I'm going to put that, that talk or that link um, in the show notes. Cause I'm really interested in how, you know, some of our most painful moments can transform into some of these magical moments. Yeah. So so you've shot some wild things to get, and you've done some wild things to get a photo. Is there a wild experience you have that really sticks out um, that took a bit of sacrifice to get the shot? Well, yeah, I think I think that the my, the photo that I usually reference when I'm thinking of this is the Aleutians mm -hmm. um, photograph of this volcano with a surfer. And the, the reason that was so crazy was it wasn't actually the thing where it was like the most stressful or the biggest struggle of, um, you know, it was more about basically me having to give, give, you know, two to three years of my life kind of helping to plan, uh, to make this place happen. Uh, and you know, everything from like just the concept of looking at a map, to, you know, calling and planning to getting there to like freezing morning after freezing morning on a quad driving like 30 miles to the beach and, and yada, yada, yada. And, and I think to have that photograph as a culmination of all of that effort was just, um, you know, you know, it was just such a reward. It was such a huge, massive reward. And I think that's just kind of what, um, I don't know. That's just like the thing that really got me, you know? That's a beautiful photo. Um, I saw that at the the Prana booth at Outdoor Retailer. So I want to oh, talk. Right. There's 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 a saying, you know, was it the archer or the arrow? And everyone says, no, it's it's Chris. It's not his equipment. I've talked to a lot of people who know you. You do landscape photography, but you also shoot, you know, people for ads or or whatever surfers. You, you've shot some diverse people, many I've worked with um, through my work at Body Glove, um, some of the same surfers. So I want to talk a little bit about the process of getting people in a photo. You know, are you, what are the tricks, 
what are the tricks you use to get subjects to feel, to basically feel more comfortable? Are you a comedian, a psychologist? Can you tell me about the different jobs you have to be to get people to be comfortable? That's funny. (laughs) Um, well, I think that it's, it's different in every stage. You know, when you're shooting a portrait, um, I, I, I tell people about this a lot. There's so many different things you, you need to do. And, and to be honest, my work isn't really about like, I don't really like to work with, nor do I like get excited about working with like professional models all the time, <laughs> ever, almost. So given that, it's not like I'm out there like, okay, like just do this, 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 you know, I'm usually working with friends mm-hmm. or I'm somewhere in a remote part of the world and I'm just shooting random people, you know? And, and so what I've always told, told younger photographers is just this concept that, um, that, uh, you know, basically if you want to create a moment where something feels, um, intimate, then you have to create that intimacy. You know, if you're in India and you're shooting street photography of people and you don't want them to feel like you're just, you're there trying to, you know, photograph them or whatever, and they're going to ask you for money, then I always tell people like, you should always meet them first and put your camera down and just interact with them. And, um, and also, you know, the smaller the equipment you have, the less, um, and the less space you create between you and your subject, like physical space, like the smaller camera, the more intimate that experience is going to be hands down. Um, Mm -hmm. it's such a value because you're able to kind of bypass some of this, um, some of this awkwardness of like, you know, you have this big DSLR and you're there to shoot a photograph or whatever it is. So when I'm shooting people in that scenario, whether it's street photography in Cuba or wherever I've been, I really try to like, just bring the smallest gear that I can. Um, and this is why like, you know, people who are shooting with iPhones out there in the world are creating beautiful work because nobody's afraid of an iPhone. You know, people aren't fearful of something like that. Everybody knows what it is. Right. Um, and, and I guess the reality is like, who's having a more intimate experience, that person or the person with a huge DSLR and a big camera bag? Well, no, that, that's a technique I use with interviews. If I bring a recorder to an interview, people are completely intimidated. When I just put my iPod, I, or my iPhone on the table and hit record, you know, people just forget it's there because they're so used to seeing iPhones. I totally agree. Yeah, it's, it's really, it's really casual, you know? Um, and, and I think that it comes the same with when I'm, you know, on a trip shooting tourism and I'm, I'm working with somebody and, um, I really like to have the ability and some, it's not always like this. I mean, just to be honest, like some days I've got to go shoot like something random for a tech brand and I just have to, we have to get the shot and get it and go, you know, and, and that's fine. But ultimately, um, I never want to ask somebody to do something that I wouldn't do. Right. Mm. (laughs) That's, that's uh, first and foremost, typically. And then secondly, if I'm there, if I'm going somewhere, um, it's the end of a long hike or, you know, we've, we've kind of finally reached this Vista or wherever it is. And I, I really want to add some context to this location or, or subject or place. Then I think just simply like asking somebody to like be a part of your image is, is usually an honor for people. Like they get excited, you know, like it's not like it's it shouldn't be this thing where it's like, oh, again, not again, you know. Um, and I find that like, you know, the, the photos that I shoot um I usually think of it in a way where like, I want this to be a photo that somebody else would be stoked to be a part of, right? Like where, you know, if it was me, I would want this picture. And I think that that's kind of the, that's kind of the feeling we try to create, you know? Mm. Um, yeah, it's, it's an element of accessibility there. So. so some of our listeners, 
they just want to take better, better photos with their iPhones. Do you have any tips or tricks if you want to take a better photo with your iPhone right now? Uh, when it comes to like our equipment, our iPhone, whatever, like learn how to use it. You know, that's the first thing. Know it, know it so well that it becomes like the back of your hand. And the more you know it, the more you can experiment, right? The less intimidating it feels. And the less intimidating it feels, the easier it's going to be to just kind of you know, pull out at a whims at a moment's notice and, and just try to create something cool. Um, the other thing is just understanding its strengths, strengths and weaknesses. You know, iPhones, they don't look good when you're shooting right into the sun, you know, so you need to find ways to diffuse the sun or find ways to kind of create, I don't know, some sort of a, an atmosphere where you, you aren't just shooting into a big ball of light because the way that the sensors work, they just don't, they can't read it that well. So what I find is like learn the strengths and weaknesses of your camera and then really, really um, try to apply those, you know, apply those principles. Um, that's, that's a big thing for me. Um, I mean, there, there's so much more, to be honest, but it's, it's a little challenging without like demonstrating. Totally good. No, you, we did a story. Actually, I interviewed you for some outside magazine story and it was about yeah. festival season and you gave three tips and I'm trying to pull them up right now, but <laughs> you gave three really good tips on how to take better photos at festivals. I'll just put that in the show notes because I can't Perfect. find it right now. Awesome. Um, so let's talk a little bit about about this about being a professional photographer. You know yeah. how how do you started in in surf in surf magazines? And I know it's like to write for surf magazines. So how did you go from making one hundred seventy dollars a spread to making <laughs> real money as a photographer? And and maybe you can talk a little bit about what real money is um, as a photographer because I know yeah. that. That 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 varies based on the person, but I think you're making real money. You've got a studio and a team, and you're doing great. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, you know, in all transparency, you know, my we we generate we we do fairly well. I mean, my my business is um is mostly nowadays commercial photography, and we we shoot a little bit of editorial photography for magazines, and um a, a big part of my business is image licensing. And then surprisingly, a very small part of my business is social media or social influencer, you know, um, selling prints and the merchandise and things like that is probably a lot larger part of our business. But the thing I'm getting at is that diversification is crucial. That's one of the most important things. Never get, never get t- attached to one thing because that one thing, I can't tell you how many times in my life, you know, that, that I was simply just focusing on this retainer with this magazine or working with this one client or whatever it is, or kind of being the best in one space, so to say, like, or, or under, you know, and I realized later on that like I had to operate and function in a couple different ways. And so now we, we really, our income is kind of based upon those five, um, five or six kind of streams of revenue. And nowadays what I find is that leaping into commercial photography is, is great. It's super rewarding. Um, it pays well, but if you are only doing that and there's not an element of like personal projects or anything that's like, that makes you feel, um, I don't know, like you're doing something that's rewarding. It can be really frustrating. Um, and, and it can really suck. So that being said, um, you know, my transition really came about because I was shooting a lot of surfing, right? And I was shooting not only surfing, but surf lifestyle. And my book, The California Surf Project, was one of the most important things I think I've ever done because it demonstrated, you know, my ability, I guess you could say, to kind of shoot all the peripheries around surfing. Mm-hmm. And so 
that's the stuff that people really cared about. You know, the brands cared about like, and so there was a lot of wineries and there was a lot of uh, wine, sorry, wine labels and, and, um, you know, random tourism, you know, people that were basically like started licensing my images later in my career. You know, I'm talking a couple of years later, uh, because they rec- recognize some sort of kind of iconic classic, um, approach to, to try and, you know, shoot surfing. And so the photographs from my California surf project or the photographs from my personal projects, not necessarily the trips, the hardcore surf trips to like, you know, to go to, uh, you know, the mentalizer or to, you know, wherever that, that wasn't the stuff they really cared about. They cared about the kind of the periphery stuff, the, the things that everybody can relate to. So I realized really quickly that, Hey, if I wanted to continue to shoot that type of commercial work or appeal to them, it had to be more universally accepted. No, not, no logos, um, not driven by like, you know, this person, this person had to be something that like any person could relate to. And that's really what started to help me define my own style. But my guess is it wasn't really just the end result you were producing. I've heard from many people, including Chris Morrow, who's an editor at Surfer, that you hustle, that you are just a straight up hustler. You've got an incredible work ethic. So I want you to really talk about what it takes what it takes to make the leap from, you know, being on retainer for a surf magazine and working with brands like Sony, Prana, you work with a lot of really big brands, and then being uh, able to do your own <laughs> project and doing kids books and photography books and teaching classics and do classes and doing TED talks. That doesn't happen overnight. That's a lot of questions. I know. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. To, but I'm gonna try to get. I'm gonna try to answer all of them. But maybe just but talk about the hustle. Well, the hustle. Okay. I mean, that's easy. Like, if you want to. If you want to, if you're getting into this career to like basically have some, <laughs> have, like think that it's all going to fall into your lap, then like I would just reevaluate because it took me years of like living in my car and eating questionable Mexican food um, <laughs> and, and self-funding trips. You know, I, I had the crappiest equipment you could ever imagine for years and I, I was okay with that because I knew that I didn't need the best gear, you know, um, I I felt like pretty, um, I felt like pretty, you have to live a pretty minimalistic existence if you want to, if you want to get to a place where you can make it, you know, and, and ideally making it means really nothing. I'm still hustling now. That's the point. Um, and I think that that's not a mindset where it's like you ever get to a place where it's all good. It's all over. You know, you've made it, you know, you have, it's a perpetual mindset. It's a perpetual way of, of thinking. And I think that one of the biggest things about hustling is it's not just like going out and working hard. It's basically detaching yourself from anything that's going to detract from you not achieving your goal. Right. And so I would say a hustle is maybe a, a, a not is not as much of a romantic word as like mm. passion. You have to have passion, right? Um, because passion trumps everything. Passion is the thing that um, ultimately will give you um, the ability to kind of, wake up at 5am when you don't want to wake up or like, yeah, choose to like not go to that party. Cause you know, you're going to just, you know, not end up being able to get to the beach the next day or whatever that is, you know, like I turned down a lot of things in my life for this career. And I just, I guess what I want to do is make sure people understand that it's not, um, it's not an easy thing, you know, and I don't really know how else to put it. No, I, I think you put it really well passion trumps everything. And, but I think it's also the way you speak with your clients because there's getting the photo, but then it's dealing with these clients. It seems like you surround yourself with really good people. I read that you took six months to prepare for your Ted talk. 
who coached you? How did you, how did that Ted talk come to be? Where did you learn to talk? Um, I'm wondering uh, if as a kid you were religious you know, too. So I, I don't yes. know if you're religious and you learned because a lot of people I know who are really good speakers spend a lot of time going to church or temple or whatever it was. You know, I, I am definitely a very religious person, absolutely, but that I don't think that was what gave me the ability to speak. Mm-hmm. I think that I was um I think that uh to be honest, I'm not a good speaker. I'm not somebody who can like just go up in front of a crowd of people and like deliver whatever. But what I find is that when I'm talking about something that I'm passionate about, it's easy for me to, to share an experience. Mm. And so the way I, the way I looked at my Ted talk was like, okay, I'm not up there trying to talk about something I'm uneducated about. I'm just there talking about what I love and what I care about. And so that made it a lot easier. And I did, it took six months and 17 revisions for me to make, to do that talk. And I'm not going to lie to you, like everything you see in that nine minutes, that was everything I had. That was everything I had in, in like to give, you know, I, I, the hardest thing about the talk was like, imagine somebody coming to you and saying, Hey, you know, Shelby, we're going to, we want you to give and deliver the, the only kernel of truth you have to offer in this, in, in the world, um, to a global stage. And it's probably gonna be the most important talk you ever do in your life. So yeah, I can't wait to hear it. Thanks. Yeah. You know, like that's essentially, it's essentially what they're asking you to do. And so for me, it was a matter of like, I had to first figure out what that was, what mm-hmm. that important thing was. And ultimately, I started out with a coach. I didn't really see eye to eye with her because she wanted it to be something else. Mm-hmm. And so I I canceled that and I basically just started to work with my um, – my wife helped me out a lot. And then I have – I had a friend who um, – uh, she's a, just a, a liter, uh, like a literary teacher and, uh, at a college here. And so she kind of helped me formulate it into like, she helped me keep my thesis in my, yeah, my singular point, like in focus the whole time, because that was sort of the thing. It's like bumper cars. You know, you, you so easily want to go off on a diatribe about something that's maybe unrelated or, or is sort of related, but doesn't really make sense. And so that was kind of the thing is like, I had to really hone it in. It's really good. As so we're going to put a link. We're going to put a link in the show notes because I really like that TED talk and it's visually stunning. So you need to watch it. Um, uh, Jeff Hawk from Prana also told me you gave a great talk at the Lux Institute in Cardiff recently, or I don't know when it was, but it was a unique perspective about protecting the environment. All sorts of surf photographers for years are like, let's not shoot this place. Or I mean, not even just surf photographers, outdoor photographers. Let's not shoot this place because we don't want people to know about it. We want to keep it sacred. You have a different take on the environment and shooting, I guess, sacred, beautiful places. Can you talk a little bit about that perspective? Yeah. Well, you know, I came from, I grew up in this like eggy, (laughs) like, uh, you know, central coast, like can only imagine <laughs> deal, you know, to be honest, it sucked. Like I, when well, I you don't kid, talk about the surf spots is what, what you're saying, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, it, it was one of those things where, you know, one of those things where just under growing up and realizing that there are people that do not like what you do, like, and that's okay. And I realized that I needed to have a sensitivity to that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I kind of realized that it's all about your approach, right? It's all in your approach. If I'm, if I'm out there shooting something and it's just to glorify myself, then what good am I doing that place? You know? Um, and it, if, but if I'm out there shooting something and it's really to bring an awareness to a place that needs to be either protected, preserved or shared, 
um, and it's going to benefit the place, then that is where I draw the line. You know, that's like where, that's where I try to make sure everything falls underneath that umbrella. Got it. So I want to go back to the ocean. You are a surfer. You've been a surfer probably since you were a kid is my guess. Where do you like to be most in the ocean? Do you like to be in it? Do you like to be shooting it? Do you like to be riding waves? Uh, my favorite thing is like a, you know, one foot to two foot overhead hollow day where it breaks close to shore and you're just getting tubes. Like, and I honestly, all I care about nowadays is body surfing. I don't really, um, I don't really like ever stand up surf anymore. Like I used to go longboard a lot and I was never into shortboarding ever, but I, I used to go longboard a lot and uh, I really enjoyed that. But to be honest, like nowadays, all I care about is just body surfing. The reason being is because it just takes you out of all of the com competition takes you out of this whole mindset of like, Oh yeah, I got to go and, you know, get, uh, try and get barreled. You know, it's a great day and you're out in the lineup, you know, with sh shoulder to shoulder with people. And I realized that when I body surf every day is a good day every day. And I, I get more exercise. I stay more fit. I, I'm able to like appreciate what I'm doing because I'm just kind of lurking on the inside, getting tubes after tubes. And I'm, I always leave smiling in some way. And so that's just like what is the is the funnest thing for me. Um, I did grow up at the beach. My whole life I've been at the beach. Um, my you know my first memories are my mom like pushing me off a boogie board when I was like you know a couple years old, telling me the ocean's my friend. <laughs> and so yeah, you know I don't know. It's it's something that I'm, I'm just constantly learning how to appreciate the ocean in different ways. Like there's it's gone through stages. Um, it's gone through stages. You know. Um, I'm just imagining you in body surfing in central on the central coast, which I get scared on a surfboard out there just because I, I think about the theme <laughs> song for Jaws the whole time. Um, so you're surprised. brave. <laughs> I know. It's beautiful out there. We're not going to talk about it because it's where you live and I'll let you keep that sacred. I've seen you do a lot of Arctic stuff. Um, any any desire to do any South Pole Antarctic stuff? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, for sure. I mean, I would love to go. I've been trying to get down to Chile for a while, uh, back to Chile, Patagonia for a while now. And I'd really love to love to go explore that zone. Um, there's, there's honestly, there's like no place that I'm not interested in going mm -hmm. and seeing. There's just certain places that I know are going to be more valuable for work and stuff like that. Um, Do you have a favorite yeah. wave you, you love shooting? Uh, favorite wave? Mm -hmm. Shoot. You know, it's not so much a favorite wave as much as it is like a favorite place. Mm -hmm. You know, the, like the East coast of Iceland is like so raw and undiscovered in many ways that I, I really enjoy just the, I just enjoy the, the landscape a lot. And I enjoy like, I don't know. It's like any wave that's fickle with no people around and an amazing backdrop is really all I care about. <laughs> There's not like there's not like a favorite specific wave, you know? I think, yeah, I, I can imagine you having a lot of fun in Africa. Um, not as yeah, cold, but maybe. Yeah. yeah. Honestly, it's funny. I've never really had a draw to go to Africa. Really? I don't know why. Yeah. What about New Zealand? Uh, New Zealand. Um, I've been there twice and I, it's one of my favorite places on earth. Yeah. We lived there. It's just incredible. Super rad. What are, what are tips and tricks for traveling long distances with lots of gear and not just, I know you on your website, you, you can find all the gear you travel with, but what's your trick for just, you know, everything else when you travel long distance? Um, I mean, I think that the, it's funny, actually, I'm a, I'm a total like, or like OCD organization freak. 
And so like the only thing I can tell you is that it's, there's nothing that I'm going to be able to say that it's like going to make sense because everybody's different. But what I found is that when I go on a trip, I pack and I, I take what I need. And then when I get home or I'm on the airplane home, I usually take the time to write a list and I say, what did I not use? What did I use? You know, and you'll usually find you brought too much of something and not enough of something else. And so I've, I refine that list over and over and over and over. And I, I kind of have like, okay, I have a kit. This is what I need for like cold water. I only need these, you know, or a cold trip. I only need this much stuff, or this is what I need for, um, you know, a warm trip. I only need, you know, one pair of board shorts the whole time. I don't know. Um, and I find just that refining process. Like if we come home and we're just like, okay, I'm done, like throw your bags down. You don't really, you don't really learn anything from it. So that's kind of a big, a big thing for me. Just like, how do I, um, how do I live an examined life? You know? And, and I like to, I honestly, I love to be able to just simplify my process always. Yeah, it seems like you try to be as minimal as possible. What were you doing in Yosemite? Can I just ask? I know you were there last week. Yeah, I just I basically did this backcountry ski touring trip out to Glacier Point um, during basically one of the biggest snowstorms in 15 years, and it was insane. Like, basically, like like eight feet of powder. You know, like it was incredible. Like, you know, I've we were like we were like skiing on these like on in this zone that like you know I wouldn't have even stood on before because it was so steep and gnarly. Um, and it was just, it was incredible. Like it was like the coolest way to see it, but getting there was a freaking nightmare. It was just like a slog, you know, my feet were killing me and, and the whole trip was like gnarly cause the road wasn't, um, wasn't, hadn't been groomed or anything, you know? So it was like, it was pretty full on. Plus I think hauling a hundred pounds of gear made it a little more challenging. So did you skin up or I mean, yep. Yeah. We skinned up. Okay. Wow. And yeah. what's, what's going to happen with it? Is it going to be a movie? Is it going to be? Di- no, shot? I was just going there for fun. Hmm. Just going there for fun. I shot a couple of photos, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't for any client. I think that's like critical for me at least is, um, is trying to always like do things that are just like, it was a bucket list item. I was like, I always wanted to do this. I've always wanted to go there and see it in the winter. And so that was my, it was my opportunity to go. Good you know. for you. So technology is really changing everything right now. We went from film to digital. Now there's drones. Do you have a prediction yep. on what what's next? Um, shoot. Uh, what is next? I don't know. I mean, I, I honestly, I'm not like a huge technology um, buff. Like I'm not like I, the the guy who knows like what's coming out next because I I guess I I guess in some ways um I guess in some ways I kind of try not to rely on it. You know, I feel like the the sooner that you try to rely on like technology to like create or make your work better or like you're you're this, then then it's like a trend that like, you don't know how long it's going to last, you know? And I would rather be, I would really rather be focusing on, um, stuff that's timeless, you know, and an aesthetic that's like really going to be going to be interesting in the next 20, 30 years, you know, um, not to say like, I don't, I love drone photography. I love all that stuff. It's just not, it's just not what I like focus on a ton. Are you shooting video or mostly, st- mostly still? Um, mostly still, I don't really ever shoot video, but I, I, I direct quite a bit and I, um, I've directed a lot of, you know, TV spots and, and motion work. So, yeah. 
Um, what? So we're, our time is coming to an end. I've, I've really enjoyed. I appreciate your time. I know you didn't sleep, so really appreciate you, you <laughs> no, waking up to talk to me. Um, just a couple yeah. quick questions. If you could go back in time and give your 15-year-old self a piece of advice, what would you give him? Um, easy. I would tell um, I would tell myself that basically the sooner you start doing the things that you know and going to the places that you know you're passionate about, um, the quicker your career is going to take off. You know, for years, for example, for years I traveled to places that I was going to because I uh, because I I knew my editors wanted me to go to places that I knew they'd be stoked on and. And this and that, and those places are great, super cool. Um, but the problem was that that stuff, you know, after it's gone in the magazine, it's just it's gone. You know, there's there's nothing else to it. You know, there's nothing really that important or, or, or long lasting. And so, I feel like when I started to travel to places that were more meaningful to me, travel to places that were more um, timeless and, and had like were interesting, and they took longer to go there, and et cetera, et cetera. They, be, they became more valuable because it's that's the type of work that I still sell today. You know, I still relicense today and I still has a lot, holds a lot more value for me today. So, I mean, whatever that is for you, I guess the key is just like, I, we obviously all have to do stuff for work or to appease our boss or whatever that is. But I just think it's an important thing to consider, like make sure the places you're going to are fulfilling you and make sure that there is, um, there is work that you're doing out there that, that is ultimately, you know, feeding your greater vision or your, your, your mantra as a photographer or as a creative or whatever that is. What is your mantra? If you could fly an eco-friendly plane around the world and it could read a message to the world, uh, what, what would that message be? Yeah, it's that I want to inspire people to travel and I want them to seek um, experiences far outside their comfort zone and ultimately find joy. I mean, that's, that's what I do this for. And, and I get a lot of joy in sharing it to others. And it's why I take the time to, to, um, to engage with people and on a daily basis and try to share that work. A lot of this show is based on people's success stories. And we don't talk, I think a lot about failure. Is there a, you know, is there a time that you failed, um, and kept going and just really, what can we learn from failure? Because all the successful people I have interviewed have failed at some point. Um, and to be honest, I've, I've made tons of failures. You know, I, I ended up, you know, in a really crappy position in Russia at one time in a, in a jail cell because I, I, had a, um, I had a passport issue that was totally my fault. It was just something that, you know, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't my fault, so to say, but it was my fault because I didn't take the time and I rushed. I rushed the process of getting there. And I think that I've had a lot of, I've learned a lot from my failures. Um, I also had like pretty big, you know, business fallouts because I was never really, I never really wanted to be a boss at all. And um, learning and understanding how that world works and how to manage people and how to be a better, you know, leader in some ways, that's been a huge education for me, like massive. So um, I guess what I'm getting at is like the fact that, you know, I, I think that, for me, failure is critical. Like I, I, I embrace it actually, because that's how we learn, mm. you know? So I wanted to ask you a little bit about that. You know, what you do is really solo, but I know you have an assistant, you have an agent, you know, is it, you have a lot of people who work for you now and that's, that's gotta be a whole other challenge. So, so how do you do it? And, you know, is it finding great people or do they find you? 
Um, well, I think that surrounding yourself by good people is, is crucial. And that's one of the things that is the hardest thing I've ever done. Um, you know, it's so challenging to do that. And that's been a huge process for me to do. And, and honestly, I don't have any advice to anybody except for just like, look for people that share your vision. And if you can like, don't define your business in a way where you're like, Oh, well, I need you to have these, these, and these attributes, you know, like people can always learn, they can always grow, find people that are proficient, but more importantly, find people that share your vision. And I have a, a you know, a list of business ethics that I try to live by and studio ethics, we call them. And then if people can support that, then you know, you're going to be surrounded by good people. I love that. You did a children's book recently. I think there's a lot of people out there who would love to do a children's book. How old are your kids right now? Two and four. Two and four. Awesome. Those are good ages and busy ages. You must be Hectic. full on right now. Um, you know, ages, what, what yeah. did you learn and what's been the most rewarding part of writing a children's book and what did you learn from it? Um, it's simple. You know, when you're making something for adults, you're, you're just having to basically entertain them visually. Um, and, you know, with like little bits of, you know, photographs do that wonderfully. It's, it's almost, it's pretty straightforward. I feel like when you're making a, when you're a photographer and you make books for, for adults, but when you make something for kids, you really have to consider, um, you know, you really have to consider how to like truly get the message across. What is the, what is the goal here? How are you, how are you creating this so that they can understand it, you know? And, and so with that children's book, I just, I felt like it was a huge education in like learning how to speak to kids and, and stuff. And that was one of the most beneficial things that I, I learned from it. And what was your nugget of truth you were trying to tell kids? Uh, I just didn't want to pass on some inherent fear of the earth. I wanted them to understand that like, this is a place that they can explore and find answers and, and that there is, there is, um, I wanted them to see the, you know, the beauty through the trees, essentially, like the whole book, the premise of the book is this kid goes around and, you know, and he, he's looking for happiness, joy, or whatever you want to call it. Um, and he's kind of like, he's looking, it's, it's all around him, but he's not seeing it, right? So he has to do one trip, kind of gets bummed out, does another trip, figures it out. I mean, yeah, I mean, for the best, I mean, it's, it's a book that's like been critically important to, uh, to, to, you know, my life as an adult too. So it's not just a children's book, I guess you could say. What's it called? The Boy Who Spoke to the Earth. Oh, I love that. So besides your books, um, and I know you like the book, The Monkey Wrench Gang, are there any other books you love and recommend? I mean, anything from Ed Abbey, obviously, anything from Thoreau or John Muir, there's some amazing, amazing, like, you know, awesome writings from obviously John Muir. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of like, you know, travels in Alaska and a lot of his, his early stuff. Um, I, I kind of collect like older books and they're some of my favorite things to, to read and, and, uh, embrace, I guess you could say. Um, but yeah, I mean, anything that just like challenges the way we look and view nature or our relationship to nature is, is usually something that I think is gonna be valuable. Chris, thank you so much for being on the show. I just want to have you answer one more question. What's next and where can the audience find out more about you? Um, shoot. I mean, I, social media is a great place to learn more about me and to connect and just chat and whatnot. But, um, I guess, uh, I guess the next project I'm working on and the thing I'm most excited to share is my film under an Arctic sky that comes out in probably the next six months here. So, um, keep me, keep, you know, keeping the loop and, and I'll try to share as much as I can. 
Thank you so much for being on the show, Chris. Um, everyone listening, his Instagram is probably one of the most beautiful Instagram accounts I've ever seen, at Chris Burkhardt. I'll put links to all of his social media, his trailers, his website, his books in the show notes. Thank you so much, Chris, for being on. And thanks for everyone listening. Well, Chris has definitely done and seen a ton at a very young age. One thing we didn't get into, and we're going to have to have him back on for round two, is that Russian jail experience. I was a little curious about that, and Chris said he'll come back on for round two to tell us all about it. Thank you to those of you for listening. Thank you for subscribing. If you like this show, please tell your friends. And don't forget... The best adventures happen when you follow your wildest ideas. I hope you have a wonderful week. We'll see you next week.